We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Uh, joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. And also in studio is Michael Turton, the man behind the much esteemed and oft-referenced Taiwan news blog, The View from Taiwan. Michael, glad to have you back. Good to be here. And also with us in studio today is uh, Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross, good to have you on the show. Good evening. I think this is the first time in a long time that we've uh, had the Americans outnumber uh, the English. So, exciting day for us. On the show today, uh, the whole world has spent the week talking about the dramatic South China Sea ruling. Uh, We've mostly been hearing talk about uh, the responses from China, the U.S., the Philippines. Uh, Well, today on the show, we're going to balance that out a bit we will be giving you the view from Taiwan to uh, coin a totally original phrase that I just made up myself. Then in the second half, we will bring you the latest on a massive ATM heist that now seems to have been the work of a pretty massive criminal organization. We've also got uh, the latest on Uber versus Taiwan's yellow cab drivers and why the DPP-led legislature is going after the Red Cross. Uh, But before we get to any of that, Uh, We got a little catch-up to play on two stories uh, that broke around showtime last week. Uh, First up, Typhoon Nepartak shot through southern Taiwan last Friday, as we reported. Uh, And Gavin, it really looks like uh, Taidong at the end of the day was the hardest hit. Uh, Taidong got rather hard hit. Yes, as we were talking last week, they had record-breaking wind speeds there last Friday. In fact, they they were going on as we were recording the show. Mm. Now, two people apparently died in Taidong. And over 100 other people were injured. Mm-hmm. That's what authorities say. Of course, the two people died. They were hit by debris, apparently. One person was apparently killed in their house when some furniture fell over. And, of course, other injuries were basically things falling from shelves and things. Right. I mean, I, we don't really want to uh, you know, downplay the, 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 the tragedy of any casualties like that. But, uh, you know, given how severe the storm was, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, you, you looked at photographs two days after that came out. And, of course, whole streets in Taidong were just ripped apart. Billboards and hoardings were across the street. Yeah. Cars had been flipped over. And it was not very pleasant for them. And apparently the government has said that agricultural losses because of the typhoon are now estimated at over 1 billion NT. Mm, and a lot of that is agricultural losses. Well, that's what I said. It's agricultural losses. And Taidong, of course, suffered the most agricultural losses. In fact, over 75% of the total agricultural losses were in Taidong. Uh, this, again, shows us how important disaster management, preparedness and responses in, in Taiwan and uh, it never seems to satisfy the expectations of the public when these situations arise. And, of course, we can't always predict these situations. Uh, but whether it was previous governments, current governments, central government, municipal governments, county governments, uh, they, they can never have enough preparation for disasters here in Taiwan. So certainly something that uh, the public is watching very closely given it's a, it's a new government. And it's unfortunate, but the mayor of Taidong happened to be out of town on the day of the typhoon. Yeah. Well, sure, he wasn't planning for that. Uh, but we're going to move past the typhoon now. I'm sure that we're going to have plenty more uh, coming our way in no time at all. So we'll be able to uh, revisit this subject pretty soon. Knock on wood. 
But uh, while that reconstruction uh, continues down south, uh, let's just close the chapter on Nepartak completely uh, and now update another story that's still very much ongoing. Uh, We reported last week on an incident in which a man detonated a pipe bomb on a commuter train in Taipei, uh, injuring 25. Uh, Now, when this broke, we had early reports uh, that seemed to indicate that there was some kind of shadowy figure uh, who maybe placed the bomb on the train, then got off. Uh, Something along those lines. It looks like that's not actually uh, how this went down. Uh, Now, the man under suspicion for committing this attack, uh, it looks like he was on the train at the time of the explosion, uh, and he's recovering from the injuries that he suffered during that explosion. Yes, 55-year-old Ling Ying Chung. He was the man that police wanted to speak to, and he's in hospital now because he was one of the worst injured people in the bomb blast. Police say that they believe the bomb, or the bomb was in a bag, which was strapped to his chest when it exploded at the train when it was at Sungshan Station in Taipei. Um, The doctor, he went to the Taipei Medical University Hospital. He's been there since the explosion. He's been in, no doubt, a pretty bad way, but he's been under police guard and now police all week have been itching to speak to him. But apparently he's had a breathing tube down his throat. Now, apparently doctors removed that tube yesterday Mm -hmm. and the Criminal Investigation Bureau did say yesterday morning they hoped to speak to him in the afternoon on Thursday, but we haven't heard anything about that. So I presume the authorities are still waiting for him to be in a stable enough condition to answer their questions. And the main thing that they're looking for at this point is motive. I know that uh, it's suspected that mental illness perhaps played a role in all this. Apparently they say apparently he'd been treated for mental illness several times over the past years and also was treated for cancer. He also said apparently there was some domestic situation going on with his household as well. Mm. So, But I'm sure all that will come out. Oh, it seemed well, well, one of the key aspects of this man's personal history is... is that he's a loner, that he wasn't in close contact with his family, and as you mentioned, Gavin, that he's suffering from depression and cancer. So it raises question about whether or not there's adequate social safety net here in Taiwan. This is something that seems to come up whenever there is these kinds of incidents with with a person who commits the, you know, this completely senseless, tragic, random acts of violence, which has happened on the MRT in schools. It, it often seems like people knew this person, but he was a loner. And no one took any action to get them the help that they really needed. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure we will, as Gavin said, be learning more about this incident uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, But once again, uh, we're just trying to hit those two first stories uh, lickety-split as fast as we could so that we could get uh, to the main event of this week. That being, the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague delivered a long-awaited ruling this Tuesday... That being the ruling on the validity of China's territorial claims in the South China Sea. Of course, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners have uh, gotten the main gist of this story at this point. But just to recap, uh, the Philippines brought this case. Uh, They were basically arguing that uh, the claims that China was making on that territory uh, and the activities that they were carrying out over there uh, went against international law. That's what the Philippines was arguing. And they won big about as big as they possibly could have, uh, bigger, uh, and we'll get into this in a second, uh, than most observers were expecting. So, very sweeping victory. 
And uh, let's, uh, you know, obviously our focus is going to be on Taiwan because that's what our show is about. That's the only reason people listen to us. Uh, But really want to be careful to set the table and uh, make sure that our listeners understand what's going on here. So let's really start with the ruling itself uh, and make sure we've set that up well. In my reading of this, uh, and Ross, tell me if I'm wrong, it really looks like there's kind of two main sets of issues that were settled here. Uh, One being what's sort of thought as the historical claims that China makes to the territory, that the nine dash line, that weird little uh, roundy U-shaped thing that goes into the South China Sea. Uh, And then the other claims being based on the individual islands that are occupied and whether or not those are islands or rocks. So kind of two different sets of issues. uh, And both of those were settled in the Philippines' favor. That, that's accurate. And, and, of course, China did not participate in the arbitration. So the ruling was based solely on the evidence provided by the Philippines and, and, and their lawyers. And China has said they're not going to recognize it. And there is no enforcement mechanism for this ruling. But, yes, it, it went to the historical claims. So the Philippines came to the panel and said China has publicly given these reasons for their historical sovereignty claims over the, these waters and, and the islands or rocks inside the waters, and the panel rejected that. And the the panel also took a very strong view on whether or not uh, some of the smaller uh, math land masses were, in fact, islands or rocks. And that's important because under the uh, United Nations Law of the Sea, uh, whether something's an island or a rock would entitle people to make sovereignty claims, would entitle them to uh, claim economic privileges within a certain distance from that landmass. So it's quite important whether something is determined to be a rock or an island. But be that as it may, there is no enforcement mechanism and China has made it very clear that they are not going to change any of the on the ground or in the water facts. Uh, Michael, yeah. Yeah, I'd just like to comment a bit. The the, the court ruled on the nine-dash line basically in historic claims. But what it didn't rule on was who owned what actually. Mm-hmm. So the ruling didn't touch on, for example, Taiping Island or Itu Aba, mm-hmm. which, which uh, the ROC claims sovereignty over. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, all of those little features are now rocks, according mm-hmm. to the court, and they just generate little bubbles of 12 nautical miles of sovereignty. And everything outside that, much of, much of the water outside that is now inside the Philippines' economic, exclusive mm-hmm. economic zone. So right. So uh, the, the, the legal distinction between having uh, a little plot of land classified as a rock versus an island is if it's a rock, you only get the 12 nautical miles. If it's an island, you get 200. Uh, and yeah, like you said, uh, this really limits the amount of sea that can be claimed based on those land masses. All right. And uh, so let's bring this over to Taiwan now. And uh, before we get into anything else, let's really make sure that we're clear on uh, what exactly are Taiwan's claims in the region. I mean, there's some uncertainty about that uh, that we can get into in a second. But uh, just in terms of the land features, run us through that, Ross. Well, uh, Ituaba, uh, this Taiping Island, which is something that Taiwan has occupied or the ROC has occupied since the mid-1950s. And Mayang Zhou's administration certainly put a lot of effort into trying to establish that this is an island. And the ways they did that was stationing personnel there and building uh, runways and other uh, physical infrastructure on the island, claiming that food could be grown there and, and there's fresh water. Uh, but, but the 
panel did reject all of those arguments. Of course, Taiwan also didn't formally participate. Uh, but uh, from a more broader perspective, Taiwan maintaining this claim, I, I would argue, is, is an important part of Taiwan saying that we are a sovereign country. We do make sovereignty claims over islands and waters um, that, that are uh, part of us being a country. So I think it's important that the government speaks out and takes a position, although they are being criticized from various quarters for the way they've responded to the ruling. Mm. And uh, part of that response, uh, so, so, so th- those, those are the individual islands uh, claimed by Taiwan, uh, but then it's so, somewhat ambiguous uh, whether or not Taiwan is really uh, going to stick with uh, those broader territorial claims based on uh, the sort of U-shaped curve out there. Uh, Gavin, what did uh, the presidential office say yesterday? The presidential office apparently is um, trying to sort of dance around this situation. This question. The issue, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Let's keep that ambiguous as well. The large piece of sea with mm-hmm. land masses in which will soon be engulfed as sea levels rise, if you really want to be pessimistic about it. But anyway, presidential <laughs> office sources, there you go. Could be a moot question in just a few it years. Could be a moot question completely, basically, because they could all be gone. But never mind. At the moment, they're hey, still that's there. Hey, that, that's, that's the most optimistic I've heard you in a while. Yes. Anyway, presidential office sources have been cited as saying that the Tsai administration has reached an internal resolution. That's an internal resolution, so this doesn't go anywhere but towards the government on how to define Taiwan's territorial claims in the South China Sea. Now, the move, this move comes because, of course, the Tsai administration is seeking not to appear to be showing any form of unified stance with Beijing on the issue, mm-hmm. although both sides technically, and if you want to go historically, claim the same areas. Right. Now, the government's resolution omits two big mentions. It omits mention of the so-called 11 or 9-dash line, however you want to call it, and it also omits mention of historical waters, mm-hmm. which means that basically the government's saying, yeah, this is ours, but we won't talk about the nine-dash line or the historical waters. Uh, so, Gavin, just so that our listeners uh, are clear on this, the main consequences of this ruling for Taiwan specifically... Specifically, this time, it's actually Taiping Island, mm-hmm. the Spratly Islands. Taiwan does have other claims in the area, the Prattis Islands and the mm-hmm. Macclesfield Bank being right. two of them. And so, you know, you just referred to it as Taiping Island, but I guess the UN now refers to it as Taiping Rock. It would be the main consequences of this ruling and, as we said, loses some of those territorial waters. My understanding is that those are overlapping, actually, with Vietnam territorial waters. So that could set up some fishing disputes between uh, Taiwan uh, and Vietnam, potentially. And Malaysia. And Malaysia. And Brunei. And everybody. Everybody and their cousin. But, Ross, I believe that uh, you had uh, another question. Well, one of the core disputes here, core struggles for the government here in Taiwan is how much of the historical claims of the Republic of China this government wants to follow. Whether it's the constitution or historical sovereignty claims, anything to do with the history of the Republic of China and that whole government that moved from China to Taiwan in 1949, how much of that does the new government want to uphold or how strenuously do they want to uphold it? That's a big struggle for the DPP, but I'd be curious to hear what Michael has to say about that. So thoughts on what this says about the historical ROC? <laughs> well, I think uh, the, the Thai government actually faces three challenges that are really difficult. The first is, of course, what any, what any new administration would face, the economy, whatever. And the second would be the trouble with China. Mm. The China issue. And the third is this we're actually in a kind of post colonial transition. The KMT was a colonial government, essentially. 
And so when you ask a question like, what is the relationship between Taiwan and the ROC, you're actually, you're actually asking a question that every post-colonial society has to face. What is our territory and what is the relationship of that territory to the previous colonial government? So in this case, the DPP, because the, we need the ROC in a way, it's one of the things that helps keep China from attacking Taiwan. So the DPP is always going to be facing this question. And one of the things I didn't like the way, about the way the Tsai administration managed this is that she went out there and talked about Taiwan and Taiping Island. So if you read the government uh, announcement, it says only ROC, ROC, ROC. Taiwan isn't used. And it doesn't mention the nine-dash line as, as we've been talking about. But then when she went on and spoke to the, to the men on that frigate that she went out to talk to, she said, you know, we have to talk about – she talked about Taiwan sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And so there's a – I've seen, you know, and the people I interact with, a, a little upsurge of Taiwan nationalism. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, my own view is that someday we're going to have to give up Taiping Island. Mm-hmm. It's indefensible. And it's uh, – you know, I don't think we get much out of it, mm. especially considering what we have to invest in it. And sooner or later, the, the, either Taiwan is going to have to give that up. Why doesn't she make the bold decision now and say, we're, we're not going to continue to make this claim that has nothing to do with Taiwan, given the distance, given that we're in a post-colonial period? Just make the bold decision now to, to, to say, you know what? It's got nothing to do with us. I mean, that would be political suicide, wouldn't it? It would be political suicide. She has domestic audiences she has to satisfy. There's still a, there's still a large segment of the population that identifies with the ROC. And there's the military, which is always a problem for a DPP president. So, uh, you know, I think she made the best decision that she could given the tremendous constraints on her. You know, you look at the U.S. People in the U.S. are complaining that Tsai Ing-wen has offended our ally, the Philippines. So there's all these audiences, international and local, that she has to satisfy. There's almost no position she could take that wouldn't anger, you know, 75% of those people anyway. Mm. And, of course, the actual land masses are only part of the issue because it's actually what's under the sea is more important than the land masses themselves. Well, it's the fish. But if you read Bill Hayden's book on it, you'll see that actually the oil issue isn't that important because in the center of the Spratleys there, in the center of the South China Sea, there's actually not that much oil. The oil's on the periphery. So the issue would be more fish and uh, from the Chinese point of view, of course, controlling what comes and goes across that ocean. Hmm. Uh, let's turn our attention to the cross-strait dimension of all of this. Uh, of course, China responded to uh, this ruling very angrily, uh, and a lot of people are expecting kind of a, the tension thermometer. Wait, what's, what's the proper metaphor here? I guess the dial, the tension <laughs> dial is what uh, we're, we're going to be using uh, to be cranked up just a little bit after all this. Uh, does that have any consequences for uh, cross-strait relations? Well, the government has said no. But well, I know the government they're, said they're not, no. They're not quite in touch with Beijing at the moment, though, are they? Because apparently the hotline's um, gathering dust. That's what we heard this week, yeah. But apparently China did turn around and say, hey, you should join us, which, of course, was part of the Thai administration's saying, hang on a minute, we won't mention the historic thing or the 11-dash line. Mm. So I think Beijing would still like Taiwan to say to support its argument, which, of course, theoretically, on paper... They support each other's arguments to claims in the South China Sea because without one, you don't have the other one. Mm. Well, one positive, positive outcome for China from this was the way the ruling described Taiwan in using a, a title <laughs> that nobody in Taiwan, whether blue or green, would like. But, yeah, it, but it is well, a title that China would like very much because it, it, it does confirm once again to a global audience that from the perspective of this panel – Taiwan does belong to China. Right. What, what, what was the wording that they used? It was the Taiwan authorities of China, wasn't it? 
Yeah. It was the yeah. Taiwan Authority of China. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting phraseology. Well, they come up with something new every day. Why not? But, you know, the nine-dash line, which they killed, basically, with this ruling, mm-hmm. includes Taiwan. It goes back to the 11-dash line, doesn't yeah. it? 1947. Yeah. And I yeah. think the Chinese yes. added another line that sort of swings around up the uh, up towards Ishigaki there, as through the their, Bashi Channel. As is their want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they conducted exercises there a few, days ago, a few years ago, last year and a couple of years before that. So. Mm. Of course, other consequences, to jump ahead here, don't have anything to do with the water either. They don't have anything to do with the land either. They have something now to do with the sky. Because, of course, China has turned around and said, well, if you're going to say that about our islands, we're going to open up an air identification defence zone in the area, which, of course, will rile everybody. Much as we saw in the East China Sea. Yes. That actually goes to what one of the big risks is coming out of this, which is a a heightened level of military activity by any of the actors involved. And when you have more aircraft and more ships traveling around, it's a large area, but it's actually a relatively small area if if we're talking about naval and air assets, the likelihood of an accident increases dramatically. And and that that is a, a very dangerous prospect for all the actors involved. And there's a lot more here than in the East China Sea. There it was pretty much Japan, China. Now we have everybody. Uh, kind of trying to sort it out together. Uh, which which actually brings us back to the earlier part of the conversation, which is should that something like that transpire, and we hope it doesn't, what is the appetite of, of the government, of the military, and of the public here in Taiwan to use force to defend Taiwan's claims? Does it, does it exist? Mm. Well, I think the uh, ADIZ is actually a good example of the way China operates because people have been talking about China wanting to open up one of those for, you know, what, three years now. Mm. So what China what uh, what China likes to do is wait until something happens, like mm-hmm. the way Japan nationalized the Senkakus. Mm-hmm. And then it will take a step. And then it will blame, well, we had to do this because, mm-hmm. but they'd actually been planning to do this step all along. Mm. So now we have a pretext. We can open up an ADIZ because you guys have ruled against us. Mm-hmm. So. Heady times, heady times in the South China Sea. Uh, We will be checking back in on it uh, quite soon, I imagine. Uh, But it sounds like Gavin's pretty happy to not be reporting about this ruling anymore. I think this is the last we can report on this ruling, at least. (laughs) He's arching his eyebrows in agreement, I'm assuming. All right, uh, well, we're going to round out the discussion there. Uh, Do not go away, though. A lot of other things happening in Taiwan this week, not just in the South China Sea. Uh, We've got that bank heist, the bank heist of the century to talk about. Controversy over uh, quite a venerable institution, the Red Cross Society of the ROC. Uh, And another controversy over an institution that's about as non-venerable as you can get, uh, the Uber app, uh, which is, you know, startups by definition, not terribly venerable, but still producing quite a bit of controversy here in Taiwan. So stay tuned in, listen for all that and more when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, and Michael Turton. Jumping right back in, uh, nothing but domestic stories uh, in the second half of the show. And to start things off, the new DPP legislator this week went after the Red Cross Society of the ROC. Or to be more precise, they went after the Red Cross Society Act of the Republic of China. Uh, The legislator on Tuesday passed a resolution to abolish this act. Uh, Now, this law has uh, quite a bit of history to it. It was passed all the way back in 1954 by the then KMT government. Uh, And critics say it grants special privileges in terms of fundraising activities uh, to the charity organization. So uh, many people see 
the organization connected to the KMT in that way. Uh, and, you know, one way to look at it, this is it's part of the broader project of untangling that web of political influence and power relationships uh, the KMT set up around Taiwan. So, you know, some people would call this transitional justice. Uh, others would see it as a political vendetta being carried out. So I'm sure our listeners know which side of that political divide they are on. Uh, you can sort that out for yourself. Gavin, let's get a little bit more specific, though. Uh, what exactly was this act saying? What did, what, what, what did this act do? Well, basically, when they, they scrapped the act, which before they scrapped it, the Red Cross could basically operate on its own. There was questions about transparency. So there were fewer uh, regulations there were, governing... Fewer regula- well, I'll get to that in a minute because I'll mm-hmm. name the acts. But there was, okay. there was fewer regulations governing the Red Cross Society of the ROC than there was other charity organizations. Got it. Now... Technically, now this now the Red Cross Act has been scrapped. The Red Cross here in Taiwan will now be governed with the by the Civil Organization Act and the Charity Fundraising Act. Now, this law governs all civil organizations and fundraising agencies here. So basically, the government has said, "Okay, the Red Cross. We know what it is. It's a good organization, like many other charity and fundraising organizations. It's been put under the same government umbrella as all the others, mm. basically." And, of course, this all started some years ago. It basically kicked off when Ma Ying-jeou was president, basically, due to the fact that the person that was in charge of the Red Cross Society then caused somewhat of a bit of controversy. Now, controversy was caused by the individual in charge, and controversy also reared its ugly head with questions over how the Red Cross Society chose members of its board. Because it was seen as a, oh, look, these people are our friends, so we'll put them on the board of the Red Cross and they'll earn lots of money and be able to drive Bugattis around the island. This irks a lot of people, needless to say, Mm -hmm. because, of course, it's meant to be a charity organisation and people who run charity organisations aren't meant to drive Bugattis, quite Mm. obviously. Just as an example, I doubt. I don't know if he drove a Bugatti. (laughs) That's just an example. Now, of course... Other things happened with the Red Cross Society over the past eight years of the Mara administration. The main one being the chap that was in charge used to be rather close to China. Mm. Now, there was questions raised every time an earthquake happened in China. The Red Cross Society would make this big song and dance about how we have to help the people in China. Money was donated to this and money was donated to other things that happened in the world brought in by the Red Cross. The Red Cross Society would raise money for these tragedies that happened in other parts of the world. And questions were raised about where this money was going. Mm. Was it going to the people here or was it going to the people there? Mm -hmm. And the last chap I keep talking about, whose name I forget, was considered rather close to China. Mm -hmm. And as in every time something happened in China, the Red Cross would pump loads of money into China and other things that happened elsewhere in the world would be ignored. All right. So uh, that gives just a little bit of a sense of how uh, an organization like the Red Cross could uh, come to be so politicized. Now that the legislature has voted to nix the uh, uh, the act in question, the KMT has uh, responded very critically to this move, basically saying, yeah, there were some privileges uh, that the Red Cross had, but you didn't have to nix the whole act. You could have been a little bit more you know, surgical about it. Well, the the fact here is that, yes, historically this organization was uh, largely run by people who had a close association with the the KMT. Uh, But if you don't like that, don't donate. It it just seems uh, like a bit of a rush 
uh, amid other priorities in, here in Taiwan to uh, eliminate the act under which uh, the, this organization was, uh, frankly, was exempt from some of the other reporting and, and uh, corporate governance requirements that might have applied to other NGOs. Uh, and as the people who are in charge of the ROC Red Cross did point out in the last few days, this is not unusual. In fact, there are dozens of countries around the world that actually have a very specific law governing the local Red Cross society. So it's not something unique to Taiwan at all. Um, but again, if, if you don't like the way this organization operates or the, the disasters that it gives money to, don't donate. It seems to be an easy solution. But then Joe Blow Public actually wasn't privy to all these ins and outs about the act, of course. You know, when they knocked on his door and said, hey, can you donate money because of this huge avalanche somewhere or huge earthquake? They would donate money and they would be unaware of how the Red Cross would be was being organized and how the money was being distributed or not being distributed, whatever the case may be. That would apply to enormous number of charities, not just here in Taiwan, but anywhere around the world. The, the, how much goes to management and, and you know, the offices and travel of, of the executives and how much actually goes to people in need. ICRT is a nonprofit. What kind of shady figures are behind the workings here? Well, well I, I've seen Gavin's car. And, uh, <laughs> and it's not a Bugatti. <laughs> not a Bugatti, no. no. Uh, but, Porsche but, 911. But, but <laughs> let, let's look at this another, from another angle, Gavin. Was this really necessary? It was really necessary now? One well, um, it depends what side of the fence you're on. You could argue it was a political vendetta. Mm. It clearly was. A and a another potential solution here would be to set up something called the the Red Plum Blossom Society that that would also seek donations for uh, humanitarian relief. I think the uh, the whole timing thing is always a you know there's always something more urgent than whatever is happening. So any time during the the four hopefully eight years of the Tide administration that we got rid of this, someone would be saying, but oh, there's something way more urgent than doing this. This is actually a simple thing to do. You repeal the law, you put the Red Cross under the local laws, boom. And our Red Cross is not recognized by the International Red Cross Society. So even though other countries' Red Crosses may also have separate legal statuses, ours isn't part of that network. So there's absolutely no reason why this simple thing can't be done. And it has overwhelming public support. The Taiwan Think Tank came out with a poll the other day. It was like 85%. Of course, it's a green think tank, so it's probably exaggeration. But even still, there's strong public support for this. This has been going on for a long time. It's easy to clean up. It's something that's needed to be done. And it's part of a – it's not just one thing. It's part of this whole transition that we're undergoing here where we're going to have to get rid of all these relics of the authoritarian state that still exist in our legal system. And this is one. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, we had some uh, related news this week as well. Uh, the KMT party assets, which are kind of mixed up in this whole kit and caboodle that we're discussing here in terms of uh, the KMT past and all that. Uh, well, they're back in the news too, Gavin. Yes, this is more transitional justice, of course. This is it's an interesting term. I mean, I think, I think that at this point that almost becomes a misleading term. Most people would think of, you know, tribunals and investigations. But anyway, go on. Well, I'm rather loath to use the term payback. <laughs> See, this is, this is why we're saying there's more than one way to so look at all So it's transitional justice. Okay. Yes, of course, the, the, the long, the long, the long talked about assets belonging to the KMT. The DPP is hoping to put a vote, what to do with these assets, to the legislature next week, I believe. But yesterday, Thursday, here in Taipei, the head of the KMT, Hong Shouju, came out and said, it's okay, it's not a matter for lawmakers to discuss. It's a KMT internal matter, and we plan to sell all our... Uh, 
alleged illegally gained assets and donate the money to charity. Mm. So being a little, basically saying we'll deal with this internally uh, and have a little bit of discretion over... To which the government replied, hang on a minute, no, it's not an internal KMT matter. It's part of our transitional justice. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what, what remains to be seen is if this law proceeds, um, how, how would it operate in, in reality? So there, there'll be a commission and they'll look at uh, how assets were acquired, but w- we could safely assume that there's going to be gaps in the paperwork. And, and, and The KMT's main argument being make a law that would cover all parties, not something that's tailor-made to go after the specific assets of the KMT. Well, but be even if that that's the way the law was drafted, the, the uh, end result would be the same because only the KMT has this enormous amount of assets. But mm-hmm. uh, the ultimate result here is the, the KMT is going to feel that their assets are being taken from them unfairly, mm-hmm. uh, and especially in cases where uh, this panel decides that, well, you illegally acquired some plot of land 50, 60 years ago, and it might be very hard for the KMT to refute that argument if there's a lack of documentation, which is probably the case for a lot of these land parcels. Mm-hmm. Of course, the government has said that it's, it's aimed at leveling the political playing field to ensure fair competition politically. But, Gavin, last time I checked, the DPP won the legislature, the presidency, and a year before that, most of the local uh, government, uh, municipal and county elections. So uh, what's not fair in the playing field? The uh, bump in the middle. <laughs> Uh, it is a bit of a bumpy playing field. That's a fair point. Uh, Michael, just on this broader project of historical justice, uh, I mean, is this is this really going to get worse before it gets better? Is this going to be a, a huge source of contention within Taiwanese society? What's your, what's, what's your uh, prediction for how this is all going to go? Well, I, I wrote, God, months ago, a set of predictions about the post-election uh, future. And one of the things I thought at that time was pretty much they wouldn't be able to get many of the assets that uh, the law would be – a lot of it would be window dressing. Uh, the the, the KMT has done a good job of parking its assets around and uh, the the DPP is going to have – any commission that goes after that is going to have uh, – it's going to be a long, drawn-out process. It has strong public support now, but I think it's going to be the kind of thing where the public is going to get tired of it and the KMT is going to be able to keep its hands on uh, a significant chunk of those assets. The DPP will get some. And it will be enough to satisfy, well, we've had some justice here. We've gotten some assets. Let's move on to the next thing. Mm. And, of course, when do, where do they draw the line? Obviously, the DPP is in power now. But if the KMT gets back in power, the KMT could do the same Does, thing. Yeah, Basically, I mean, doesn't this have, just kind of set up a, a, a never-ending right. circle of retribution? Of all the things to worry about, that's not one thing I worry about. <laughs> It just keeps uh, Taiwan politics interesting for right. generations to come. It's blog fodder for years to come. <laughs> it's, not, it's that bump in the middle of the pitch. See, that's uh, that's the kind of uh, bias that we can uh, expect from this program. Our bias is more news is uh, good news for yeah, us. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're going to move away because we have two more stories that we want to hit before we end uh, this broadcast version of Taiwan this week. So we're going to have to hit them fast. Uh, Gavin, we got quite a, a dramatic bank heist this week. Yeah, uh, these, these guys definitely hit First Bank's automatic teller machines fast, didn't they? They hit it pretty hard. Interestingly, they, they, they used the cover of Nepartak to make this heist happen, apparently. Apparently, uh, the police were distracted uh, throughout the island, and uh, 
it wasn't so much, you know, Jesse James, Bank High shootout kind of deal. It was more Russian hacker. Allegedly, they were, anyway. They were allegedly, they were allegedly stealing Russian. money, and they were allegedly Russian well, apparently hackers. They're, apparently, the, the police now believe it was an international organized crime ring that was involved in the hacking of the first bank's automatic teller machines, of course, the weekend the typhoon hit. And they, 70 million NT. Apparently, well... Apparently, some reports say 70 million, some reports say 72 million, and other reports say 80 million NT. More money than I've ever seen. It's a lot of money, either way. It doesn't really matter. Apparently, the money was taken from 34 of First Bank's ATMs in Taipei, New Taipei, and Taichung. Now, the government, or the police rather, say at least two people suspected of involvement were Russian nationals, and they left Taiwan on Monday. They made it out, made it out for Dodge. They're now saying a third suspect whose nationality remains unknown, has also left Taiwan, mm-hmm. leaving at least two or three other suspects in Taiwan. Right. Well, and then it's highly suspected that there were some Taiwanese nationals that were involved in all this. The police have been a bit quiet about that. Originally, the police came out and said, ah, we possibly believe that the someone who worked for or with the bank might have been involved. Mm-hmm. But that seems to have all gone quiet on that front, whether it's all gone quiet on that front because... There was no evidence, or it's all gone quiet on that front because the police are keeping shtum about it, <laughs> because the investigation's ongoing and they don't want to tip anybody off, are yet to be seen. But I found one of the interesting things about this case was the fact that police say they took DNA samples obtained from a taxi in which some of the suspects travelled. That could be anybody's would DNA. You, would you want to touch a taxi? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Michael, I mean, uh, you, you've been here for a while. Is this uh, the biggest bank heist you've seen? It's the biggest one I can remember, but uh, I, I think the DNA angle is really funny because it said they had the DNA of foreigners. The police announced that. They, they can tell that apart, I guess. Foreign DNA, that's right. Oh, that's... The passport code is stamped right there <laughs> inside the genetic code. That's definitely, uh, that's a Russian's DNA right there, I can tell. <laughs> and of course, what was funny about this, did you see the, did you see the pictures on the front pages of today's newspapers? Uh-huh. You had these mug shots of the people that were allegedly involved. And they, they, they dressed them up in all different hairstyles and facial hairstyles and sunglasses, ball caps, no ball caps. So if you saw them, you just need to compare it to one of those eight pictures and see if it matches anything on the, uh, on the scatter plot. But of course, they now say they're working with Russian authorities. Okay. And that, that raises a whole different set of issues uh, because uh, Taiwan uh, historically has not been terribly successful getting extradition of uh, anybody. Anybody. Yeah. I mean, the, even the UK, we have the... the we have Mr. Zane Dean yeah. still in a Scottish prison, don't we? Yes. And I, I have some suspicion that it would be even less uh, successful trying to work with Russia. I, I mean, I, I don't know, but that would be my guess. Mm. They did blame a Latvian national earlier this week, but mm-hmm. apparently the Latvian national was being ruled out because he was a poor student at university. Mm. <laughs> That's my be a, cover. That's my cover. That's a deep cover. He couldn't be a hacker. He, he couldn't even make it through university. Well, uh, to be fair to the authorities, uh, one thing that both this incident and the, the train bomb that we discussed earlier does show that uh, the Taiwan police law enforcement agencies actually have a, a fairly good CSI capability that, that mm. they are able to use uh, te- very advanced technological tools to close cases very quickly. It seems that their difficulty is with more old-fashioned types of crimes. that They mm. have more difficulty uh, cracking those cases. Uh, but uh, if there's things that leave a lot of evidence uh, on the scene, um, whether it was the bomb in the train or at an ATM machine or in a taxi, uh, they actually have a fa- fairly 
quick and advanced capability to crack these cases. They also crack a lot of them now with the cameras because, of course, one must remember that Taipei, there is an infestation of closed-circuit television cameras in Taipei. Well, that happened a few weeks weeks ago with uh, President Tsai when she – the day she departed for Panama, somebody called in a bomb threat to China Airlines and they they were able to track that guy down within a day – Turned out he was an employee of China Airlines, and he went to a 7-Eleven and called in the bomb threat, and he was caught on, on the cameras. In fact, the cameras caught him getting into his own car. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and even to just be uh, fair to the banks as well, apparently a similar form of heist uh, took place in recent years in EU banks, uh, banks throughout the EU. So That's where they tied it in. They believe the same gang was involved in both robberies. Yeah, so not necessarily a, a, a sign of incompetence or unpreparedness on anybody's front, but I'm sure we will be learning more about this uh, in the near future once uh, we see whether or not all of these guys made it out of Taiwan or just a couple of them. Last up for today, uh, we want to hit this one before we round things out. Uber. The Uber saga continues. Of course, uh, Uber, uh, the popular ride-sharing app, has been facing off against regulators in Taiwan. Uh, Uber says that it's just an information-sharing platform. Uh, The regulators say, no, 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 you are an unlicensed transport platform, and we are going to fine you for that anytime uh, you allow a, a ride to take place. That is a violation of our transport rules. Well, the Ministry of Economic Affairs yesterday promised to consider withdrawing the ride-sharing app's business license in Taiwan in a response to some fairly uh, massive protests from the yellow cab drivers. Yeah, some 2,000 taxi drivers occupied part of Ketagalan Boulevard near the presidential building and an area around the legislative building earlier this week. And, of course, they were protesting Uber. They, taxi drivers' unions say that their business is down between 20 and 30% mm. since the online transportation began operating here in Taiwan in 2014. Quite the photo op, seeing all those yellow cabs together. Well, it's not the first time. They have had taxi drivers and taxi driver unions are are known for having protests, except in recent years the protests have got less violent Mm. as they were once upon a time. Well, as Gavin would remember, uh, at some point the government had to ban taxis from having uh, old-fashioned CBs in the vehicles. This is pre-mobile phone era because different groups of taxi companies used to call each other up with their CBs and say, we're having an argument with the other taxi company. And they would all race to a particular (laughs) intersection and get out of their taxis and start throwing punches. Ah, the good old days. Yeah. I really missed out on that. But apparently the the transportation authorities have issued fines totaling some 62 million NT on Uber and its drivers since September of 2014. Well, that's the interesting thing here is it's not like the Ministry of Transport hasn't been doing anything to crack down on Uber, uh, but apparently the taxi drivers feel like it's not enough. Well, that's just a cost of doing business to Uber. Look, Uber faces this issue wherever they do business around the world. But let's look at this from an, from another perspective. Right? New government, they say they want to support the technology industry. Why don't we be bold here and say, you know what? We welcome the sharing economy to take off in Taiwan. Taiwan is a technology island. It's a place where we manufacture hardware. It's a place where the population is extremely talented at using the latest in gadgetry or the latest in apps. Uh, why, don't, why don't we encourage this and let, let the message go forth that Taiwan is friendly to, to 
sharing economy and apps and things of that nature. Well, well ironically, actually, Ross, a few years ago, of course, there's the Taiwan Taxi Company. It's a taxi company here in Taiwan. Yellow cabs. It's organised. It has drivers, respectable. They're clean taxis, and the drivers all wear sort of a semi-uniform. Talking about this, Taiwan Taxi Company had an offer. If you rang the company and you ordered a taxi, you would get ten percent off your fare if you went a certain amount of distance. Great, especially for where our office here is in Tai, outside of Taipei City, because every time I'd get a taxi home, I'd get ten percent off my taxi fare. Well, other taxi companies and individual taxi drivers didn't like this ruling, and the government scrapped it. Basically, the government made it illegal for Taiwan Taxi to offer ten percent discounts on called-in fares because other companies complained about it. So the, the, this is basically just depriving consumers of choice. Basically, yeah. That's what they did to Taiwan Taxi. Now they want to do the same so thing to Uber. So it's a it's a highly regulated industry. Uh, which is the issue, of course, which, because right. Uber drivers are, are private car owners that don't do tests right. to get from A to B. Okay, right. but, but the so reality not... is Uber has agreed in different countries around the world to some level of tests and insurance for their Uber drivers, and that's the typical solution that Uber reaches with regulators in other places. So these, these tests are state tests or city tests, yeah? Yeah, the, the, the the Uber says our drivers will have to have certain licenses. But uh, you know, coming out – well, against Uber, instead of finding a solution, basically says Taiwan is, is not open to new business platforms. And that's a very negative message for Taiwan to be putting forth. Being a bit facetious here, I think if you really wanted to stop Uber operating, you could do it in a day. You give 500 policemen, 500 mobile phones. They each go somewhere in the island. They each ring an Uber driver. Uber driver turns up. You confiscate his vehicle. You've taken Uber out in one day. Not that I want to do that. I'm just saying it would be quite easily, if you thought about wanting to stop them, you could do it with very little effort, I would have thought. You haven't got to catch them. They come to you. The nefarious plannings of uh, Gavin Phipps. Now, uh, well, Michael, I mean, do do, do you have any nostalgia for the yellow cab? I I mean, it really does just come down to regulation, and the Uber app skates a lot of that, even if you kind of patch it with what Ross was talking about a second ago. uh, You know, it's a very different way of uh, uh, approaching things. Does that regulation argument have any salience with you? Well, (laughs) one of the key functions of regulation is for existing businesses to prevent new businesses protectionism from, from yeah taking them out and that's what uber could be doing here i think one of the things that you because uber is widespread you can easily find it if you want to it, it exists in taiwan I, I i've never used it so i don't actually know anything about it that way i haven't but you know a lot of my friends use it and mm. so you could say well maybe they're trying to stop it or maybe they're just trying to keep it to a tolerable level mm. so we can let this this is a very taiwan solution right put a little pressure on let it exist. Because as Gavin said, it would be very simple for the government to stop Uber if it really wanted to. Mm. All right. So I pine for the days with taxis weren't yellow and they had pachinko machines in one of the seats in the front. I never even got those days. That sounds amazing. I really did miss you out. missed out, man. I totally missed out. All right. So this is going to be, a, in all likelihood, another one of those things that just kind of uh, simmers in the background uh, for... Weeks and years and years and gives us stuff to talk about uh, over and over again. So we can't complain about that. Uh, But we are going to move on to our our final story, this being our podcast bonus story for our podcast listeners. A little bit more on the lighter side. Try to keep these final stories light. Uh, Gavin, what do we have today? We've got a special one today. 
it's for coming... a special one because Michael's in town and Michael loves this topic. He just loves this topic. <laughs> you see. Now, the sorry story of a man who lived in New Taipei. He lived in New Taipei for 15 years. One of his neighbours was singing KTV every day, every evening for at least two hours. Now, he put up with this for 15 years. He called the police. He called the Environmental Protection Administration. They turned up with their little gadgets. They heard the sound, but they said, no, it doesn't go over the limit. Can't do anything about it. He finally pushed it. He finally had enough and took her to court. Mm. The judge ruled in the singer's favour, saying she was only singing and she was not causing problems for anybody. I don't know if we should even be reporting this story. We're just giving encouragement to all the would-be KTV normally home singers. I, normally I wouldn't report it, but the video was one of the funniest Apple Daily News videos I've seen in a long time. And, of course, we have Michael in, who also has neighbours that sing KTV. Every night they howl in the hills behind my house. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the only solution here would be for Michael to establish a nine-dash line around his home <laughs> to, mm. to ensure that you know, there is a KTV-free zone. Do you have historical precedents on your side? I think I at least have a 12-nautical-mile KTV-free zone. <laughs> Hey, I, I'd, want, I'd want the 12 nautical security mile zone, a big security area. Although you could start a taxi company and call it the KTV Taxi Company. And everybody gets in the car to sing. At least they're contained in metal and steel God. at that point. This is why I have gray hair. <laughs> so, so, Gavin, what's, what's his next move now, now that the courts have not ruled? Oh, there's another case going. He's, he's hoping another case. He's got a civil down. case now. That was a criminal case. He's got a civil case now. He's got a civil case. But the, 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 the Apple Daily interviewed the neighbors. And they weren't quite as angry about it as I would have thought they would have been if it had been really obnoxious KTV. Mm. We may, maybe she was a decent singer. Did that come up? Was that part of the one of the things that the judge took into account? No, he said he, she was doing nothing wrong and not harming anyone. She was in her own house singing KTV. All right. If I was the man, I would go out, I would buy the Black Flag playbook, mm. I would buy a KTV machine, mm-hmm. I would put Black Flag in there, and exactly. I would give this woman Black Flag 24 <laughs> hours a day. And play it two dec- decibels below the legal limit. No, my, my amplifier would go to 11. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's how we deal with that case. Uh, I actually do some singing in my apartment. I hope that I don't get any phone calls from my neighbors. That's uh, been a long-standing fear of mine, but I'm just going to continue crossing my fingers. Uh, and we are going to round out the show right there. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Uh, we are starting a little bit earlier than we have been in the past. Uh, broadcasts come about 8.20 p.m. these days. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, uh, and we've just started posting to the ICRT blog as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. I think I'm going to get, tech, I'm going to get an Uber taxi home now and see my KTV. I imagine you will. Uh, also with us in studio today is Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And Michael Turton. Thanks. Uh, good to have you back. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.